afternoon. For those who don't know me, my name's Ephraim and I'm one of the pastors here and I'm privileged to be sharing the word with you today. Um, it's a cold day today, right? But we complain as if we don't expect it in this country. We can get four seasons in one day. Praise God. Um, if you see me put on my hat during the course of the message, then it's just because I'm feeling it in my head top. Um, very, very sensitive to the slight, slightest. Don't laugh at me. It's not funny. It's like, what can I do? <laughs> and so um, I, may, I may need to, yeah, run for cover. Okay. So, I, I commend you all for making it out. I commend you. Um, listening to uh, the radio this morning and hearing the announcements of a couple churches that have cancelled their services due to the snow. Yeah, yeah, it's true, it's true, it's true. Not mentioning any names, not throwing any shade. And um, I know, we, you know, fewer people than normal, so we're able to recognise who the lightweights are. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking, come on. You know, a good hearty laugh to warm us up to you, <laughs> Praise be to God. But I commend you for, for turning out. And um, we're continuing in our series, The Death of Death. It's quite a somber series in some ways, but also a very delightful one on the other hand. Um, thanks to Pastor Rob for kicking us off with the first two um, sessions and just considering death and its impact upon humanity. And um, today we're going to be looking at spiritual death, spiritual death. And um, so, yeah, it's going to be quite a weighty um, topic for us to consider and not an easy one to deliver. Um, somebody once said, when we as Christians speak of spiritual death in any sort of terms, we are always to do so with tears in our eyes. <clears throat> because it is a sober reality. And yet at the same time, not only are we considering the sober reality of spiritual death, but we're also going to consider the fact that it has been conquered. Praise be to God. And so, um, we're going to be looking at Matthew 25, 31 to 46. And so, um, I'll read that and then um, pray. When, a, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, 
as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Father, we sit and we contemplate the reading of your word, recognizing that you are God and you do not lie. You're not a man that you should lie. Your yes is yes, and your amen is amen. And this is what you've said in your word, Lord. And as we hear it, Lord, we are forced to contemplate ourselves. And our standing with you, Lord. And as we do that also, Lord, we think of those whom we know. And we consider their standing with you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today in such a way that, Lord, we would be drawn closer to you, that we would be strengthened in you, that, Lord, we would be in right standing with you through Christ, and that, Lord, we would be compelled, motivated, driven to reach out to others in such a way that they too would be. And so we ask this of you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the beginning, God said this to Adam. Surely you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, people have looked at that and said, you know, straight away, the Bible's not true. Adam ate the fruit, his wife ate the fruit, and they didn't die immediately. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we recognize that there was a point at which later on they did die. And so... Death, the inception of death was introduced to the environment and to human experience. Some translations say, in dying you shall surely die. And so the process of death set in at that point. And as we know, Adam and his bride Eve are no longer with us. And so there was a point at which they physically died. And yet, what was being communicated was more than just a physical death, as we heard of it last week, but one that is also encompassing a spiritual death. It's actually at the other end of the Bible that we get an insight to what we understand to be the second death or spiritual death. In Revelation 20 verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so we see that the scripture speaks of a second death. Pastor Rob gave us a conundrum last week. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Born once, you will die twice. If all you've experienced is the natural birth. But if, as Jesus said in John 3, you've been born again... Well, you've been born twice, and so you will have no part in the second death. It will have no power over you. So how does this second death work? It's very difficult to understand in all of its fullness. Commonly, we understand it to be referred to as hell, spiritual death. And we see the writers of Scripture trying to explain to us this concept that is very hard to put into human terms. It's a spiritual reality that's out of this world, literally. And so how do you communicate in mere human terms something of such otherworldly reality. To give you an example, I want you to imagine you're speaking to someone who has been born blind. They see nothing at all, just darkness. They've never seen light. They've never seen shades of light. They see nothing at all. And you're tasked with the responsibility to try and tell them what you now see on screen. How do you explain to them a person who's been born blind, all they see is pitch black, utter darkness. How do you explain to them what you now see on the screen? Anyone want to offer a, a, a suggestion? How you might uh, uh, try and approach that? I know there's one or two of you like, you know what, I'll, I'll have a go, you know. <laughs> Some of you work with words, you, you know, you kind of, I'd have a go. But I wonder if there's anybody who would, seriously, anyone want to have a go? Convert to Braille? Okay, but what do we tell them in Braille? But, so what we see in front of us at the moment is we see colors, yeah. It's a good first step because we understand that people who don't have sight use Braille to communicate. So we could try and put it in Braille. But what do we say to them in Braille? On the screen is what? You and how do you explain the concept of color to someone who's never ever seen anything but pitch black? <laughs> and great difficulty. And you might want to try and translate or, or, or use references that are familiar to them as an example. So there is an image that is visible to the eyes, which obviously you can't see, and the image has two aspects to it. And one might be compared to an object that is heavy. And the other one might be compared to an object that is lighter. And they are side by side. And those objects are labeled. And, and you see what I'm saying? And so you begin to try and bring other examples into their world, that, that is part of their world, to use it to try and connect them to But it's not an easy task. 
And all you can do is just use examples that may be familiar to them in such a way that they might try and grasp. And even when they do, they're never going to really grasp the fullness of what we see. Picture is worth a thousand words. Could be the opposite. They can't. Say that again. Right, so their other senses are enhanced. True, true, true. So they might have, a, in some ways, a heightened sense of awareness within the scope of their own reference. True, true. Um, in many ways, this is the, the, the challenge faced when those to whom God re gives revelation of the afterlife and the second death, that they have in trying to communicate to us in human terms that revelation. Even Jesus himself endeavored to communicate it in basic terms, but really only gave a one-dimensional understanding of it. Nonetheless, the Bible speaks of hell. It speaks of the second death. It speaks of the eternal torment. We see this in our verses in Matthew. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then again in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we understand that actually human beings are everlasting beings. Technically, we're not eternal beings. God is eternal because he has no beginning and no end. But as humans, we will last forever. We have a beginning, so we're not eternal, but we have no end to our spiritual being. And so whatever happens to us after this world will go on forever because we go on forever. And so we see in this verse 46 here that actually a parallel is being drawn and yet a contrast between eternal punishment or torment and eternal life. There are those who will experience eternal punishment and those who will experience eternal life. And they have one characteristic in common. They're both eternal. And so in this, we, we see that if we have an expectation of eternal life, it is only right that we have an expectation that there is an eternal punishment. This is Jesus saying these words. And he's communicating to us the fact that the afterlife, regardless of destination, has one thing in common. It goes on forever. This really ought to silence those who would say, well, actually, no. Um, I think that we just cease to exist. Or I don't even think that God punishes people eternally. But that actually some point they just cease to exist after experiencing a period of punishment. Or others who would say, no, actually, people experience a period of punishment and then they are allowed to go into heaven. This is inconsistent with what the scripture tells us, as we'll see um, shortly in further detail. Often, people have a fundamental problem with this sense of eternal punishment. For some, it's the duration of it. For others, it's the nature of it. 
Well, we've kind of touched on the fact that well, if we are everlasting beings, whatever happens to us is going to be everlasting. So, hence the enduring nature of it. But what about the fact that it's punishment that comes from God? R.C. Sproul is a theologian who went to be with the Lord just um, the end of last year. And he has a book called Saved From What? It's a booklet. Great little booklet. And then he says this, I think the greatest point of unbelief in our culture and in our church today is an unbelief in the wrath of God and in his certain promise of judgment for the human race. This was his contention and his concern that not just in society, but even in the church, there are those who would say, no, God's not going to pour out his wrath, not going to pour out his anger. He's not going to pour out judgment. How do people arrive in this place? When we have too low a view of God and too high a view of ourselves, we arrive in this place. When we think that God exists for our pleasure and not us for his, we arrive in this place. When we create a God in our minds according to our own expectations and standards and don't accept the revelation of himself for who he is, we arrive in this place. Who would know the mind of God that we can give him counsel, that we can give him advice and guidance? Lord, here's your appointment for your IAG session, information, advice, and guidance. And I think this whole idea of Ralph is just so foolish. It just doesn't do you well at all. And yet, as patronizing and condescending as that sounds, this is the attitude that so many have in their hearts. Having said that, we would all recognize that actually, there are some people for whom that we hope that there's judgment. And so we even contradict ourselves. We would hope that there's judgment for certain individuals in relation to the crimes they've committed and the things that they've got away with. Interesting enough. This here is a picture of Guy Fawkes. He is, um, would we say, celebrated on fireworks night. <laughs> yeah, November the 5th, every year. This is the guy who started it all. And um, he was guilty of um, conspiring to blow up the House of Lords, him and his his fellow band of criminals, and um, he was caught red-handed guarding the gunpowder, hence it being known as the gunpowder plot. They had um, a, a, a venue underneath the House of Lords that they had been rent in, and they'd filled it with gunpowder, um, and he was there guarding it as they were getting ready to blow up the House of Lords, and they caught him in, in the act. And so on the 5th of November, he was sentenced to be hung drawn and quartered. And that's a phrase we may have heard, you know, in some films. Hung, drawn, and quartered. And kind of rolls off the tongue, but what does it really mean? It means that he was going to be hung. He was going to be dragged behind a horse through the streets, his dead body dragged. And then after he'd been dragged through the streets for however long, they would then cut his body into quarters and send it to different parts of the kingdom as a warning never to attempt treason against the king, against the crown.
Now, if he was trying to come and blow up somewhere else, anyone else's house, he may have had time in prison. But treason against the crown didn't just result in him expecting a certain death. I mean, it was, this was beyond death. He was already dead having been hung. But that wasn't enough. An example needed to be made of him. He had to be dragged through the streets, his dead body. And then his body cut into quarters and sent to the far regions of the kingdom in order for people to see and know you don't play with the king. This is human, earthly royalty. Not an eternal being sinning against an eternal God. We think about Adolf Hitler. Easy example to give. He's well known for the atrocities that he committed. And yet, he died on the 30th of April 1945 by putting a bullet to his head. And so many people, even amongst the Jews today, feel the, the depth of the injustice of that situation, that he was never held to account for his crimes. It's seen, I mean, oh, he's dead, but it's seen as if it's the easy way out. Instant death, bullet to the head. With all the suffering and pain and torture that he inflicted on others. It's understandable that people would feel a deep sense of injustice and would hope that actually there is a judgment to come for a man like Hitler. But we serve a holy God. And if there's a judgment for a Hitler, then there must be a judgment for all people. God is no respecter of persons. We're quick to quote that when it's in our favor. God's not partial. When we're trying to endear ourselves to be recognized, you know? God can use you, he can use me as well. He's not partial. If God can judge you, he can judge me as well. He's not partial. This concept of God pouring out his wrath isn't a new one. I remember a time, and this is, this is absolutely without exaggeration. I remember a time in my life where I struggled with this concept of God judging the world. People being judged for sin and, and being put in hell and experiencing eternal torment. And I just, want, I just felt like, you know what, it's a hindrance to the gospel. Isn't it easier to just tell people that God loves them and he's got a great plan for their life and if they trust him, he can make their lives better and you will never experience life like you could experience it in Christ and there ain't no party like a Holy Ghost party and, you know, and I want to just be able to tell people that and be liked and, be, and people like to see me when I come around and be popular. You know what I mean? It's like... And I struggled, and I remember, we used to have a um, prayer meeting over at um, Tim and Debbie's. They used to live over by the bridge near the KFC on Lewisham High Street there. I remember this day, I was wrestling with the Lord this day. I remember wrestling, and I just was like, Lord, Lord what can I do? And we were supposed to be praying, and I was struggling to pray. I was just like, you know what, just start to look at the scriptures. and Look at the Bible. What can you do? Just look at the Bible. See what God has said for himself. And I started to go through the Bible. thought, okay, let me go in the Old Testament. Because in my mind, at that point, I wasn't even really kind of referencing the fact that much was really said about eternal judgment in the Old Testament. I know God was always judging the nations and so on. Temporal, but eternal judgment? And as I began to look, I was just like, Lord, you are holy. Listen to what it says. Zephaniah 1, 14 to 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. 
The mighty man cries aloud. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. I mean, that sounds intense, right? You would think that, do you need so many terms like, come on, that's enough adjectives, bro. <laughs> a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung, like feces. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. I mean, you know, Zephaniah is one of those books that you kind of, it's always stuck together in your Bible. Like, you, it's on the app, you just never find yourself there. It's just like, and then you, you look at what it says and it's no wonder why. Nobody's running to read this in the Bible. Look at what Amos says. You know them obscure prophets who you think ain't got much to say? <laughs> Woe to you who desire the day of... Oh, you think Hitler deserves judgment? You, you want to see the day of the Lord for Hitler and him stand before the judge? Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Oh, <laughs> or went into the house and laid his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? This, this, isn't, this isn't like... Inconsistent. This is an isolated talk. I mean, I'm focusing on the minor prophets because they're the ones that we don't normally go to. This stuff is all over Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Listen to Joel. Joel chapter 2. You know, this is the verse where young men will see, see visions and old men will dream dreams. And the, the, this is the one we remember for those reasons, right? Yeah, check the context. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them the peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale, regardless of your melanin and complexion. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, 
They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is consistent. And it was those verses that I read as I sat down in the prayer meeting that night, and I just realized, Lord, this isn't a secret. This isn't some misconception that somebody has just come up with as it relates to who you are and your plan and your purposes to end all things. This is what you have said about yourself. You have spoken to us through the prophets of old, and yet now through your son. Who can resist? Who can withstand? God said that the eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. So why is it that people go to hell? Why is it that people will experience eternal torment? Look at this in the book of Hebrews. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Moses went up the mountain, received the law of God. Look at what happened when Moses came down from the mountain. Taken from Numbers 16. The people had been worshipping idols at the foot of the mountain. Moses has gone too long. Remember watching the film, The Ten Commandments, and you see them. Come on, Aaron, make us a calf. Made of gold. Here, here's the jewelry. You could do it. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. So Moses, he's affirming, you know what? Maybe this isn't something that you've ever seen done, but God will do this. Verse 33, so said, so done. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So there was instant and immediate judgment at the foot of the Mount Sinai as Moses came down with the tablets of God. Because even in the time that he had gone, they had been given over to worshipping idols and not giving God the glory and honor due to his name. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? 
and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. I mean, if people experience that kind of treatment, resisting the ministry of Moses, how about Jesus, God's only son? God has given his son to resist the eternal son of God can only result in greater punishment. Jesus gave himself as the sin bearer in order that anyone who would believe in him would have eternal life. We understand this. The question is, why would anyone choose not to believe in Christ? Why would anyone choose to resist Christ, to reject Christ? God doesn't say, you can have eternal life through my son if you perform all of these tasks of the law. God doesn't say you have to go on pilgrimage, you have to pray five times a day, keep the, the five pillars. God doesn't say these things. God doesn't say, well, you know what, you have to kind of make yourself a part of the Jewish people and take on a Jewish identity and... God doesn't say you have to go to climb Mount Everest and ascend to the heights of the Most High and meet him there at the top. God doesn't even say that you have to live one perfect day in your entire life. And I'll be pleased with that. Don't sin in thought or word or deed for a whole day. Now, you might think, if God said that, that might be kind of achievable, you know. I, I, I'd have a go. I'd keep trying. You would try until the day you die. Not one wrong thought, not one wrong attitude, not one wrong word, not one wrong action. You really think you could do that? See, if God had set that as a task, some might think that's reasonable. That's a means by which we can escape eternal judgment. But God has been so much more gracious, so much more generous in that he gave his son to live a sinless life in order that we might be credited with his status. By believing, by simply humbling our hearts, recognizing our need for a savior and putting our trust in Jesus. That's all it takes for us. But Christ went to the cross. He didn't just live a sinless life. He actually he took a sinner's death. You know that they could have beaten Jesus all day and all night. He wouldn't have died. Because he was sinless. And as we learned last week, death came from sin. And so as the sinless son of God, flogging him day and night, he wouldn't have died. Because the Bible predicted and affirms in Galatians, that actually cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And it is when Jesus was nailed to the cross that he took upon himself the curse of the law. He became accursed. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus went to the cross as a, as a hated, despised criminal. You know the way that you go to prison and this kind of like, you're in prison, but there's this kind of pecking order. And so you're in prison, but even though you're all in prison together, you're not as bad as the rapist. 
And the, the rapist is like, okay, well, I'm not as good as the thief, but I'm not as bad as the pedophile. The person hung on the cross was regarded as the lowest of the low of all of the lowest criminals. Pedophile, rapist, like you think deserving of execution, public humiliation, naked hanging on the cross. That's the death that our Savior died. In our place, that's the pain and humiliation we should have experienced. But that's not all. We read these mysterious words. The eternal Son of God cries out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that instant of taking upon himself the sins of the world, Jesus experienced separation from the Father. That is eternal torment. That is eternal punishment. To be separated from God. We can't begin to imagine what that feels like. We understand that it's a spiritual reality in terms like outer darkness and eternal flames are used to describe it, but they're mere earthly representations of just how deep and dark that pain is. Jesus experienced separation from the Father. Ezekiel says, your sins have separated you from God. It didn't change his nature. He was still divine. He was still the second person of the Trinity. He was still God in every way. Because one of the fundamental characteristics of God is that God doesn't change. And if Jesus had changed in his divine nature in any way, then he would have ceased to be God. God would cease to be God. And so in this mysterious moment, he experiences separation. And he goes through all of this in order that we wouldn't have to, that nobody would have to. And so you imagine the disgust. You imagine the absolute sense of rejection is far too weak a work, word. Treachery that the father experiences when somebody says, no, I don't want the free gift that you've graciously given at the expense of your son. I don't want that. Even though it, it, it cost you your own son, I don't want that. The only thing it can result in is anger. The only thing it can result in is wrath. I mean, God has every right to say, but I didn't ask anything of you. I didn't lay any expectations on you. In my love and my grace and my kindness and my just generosity, I actually made it easy for you. And yet in your pride and in your self-righteousness, you're going to stay there and resist and reject what I've offered you so freely? Okay, have what you want. Will be the cry of the Lord. Go to hell. Now, it's important that we understand that hell isn't some afterthought. God made eternal fire for the devil and his angels, and it was like, oops, oh, there are some people who, they're going to need that as well. Not at all. We recognize from the prophecies that God knew there would be people who would resist him, who would reject him. And in doing so, they are aligning themselves with Satan and therefore due the same punishment as him. 
Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. To the very Pharisees, the religious leaders who rejected him, he said, you are of your father, the devil. And this is the status of anyone, however moral, however religious, however good. This is their status. If they are not in Christ, they are of the devil. And therefore, will receive the punishment that is due to him. And so the day of the Lord's wrath is certain and sure and entirely justified because the reality is that no one has to experience it. I mean, we would have, maybe, maybe we'd have grounds to complain. I mean, who complained against God? God is God, right? He made us. We didn't make ourselves. But maybe we would have grounds to complain if God made it hard for us to, to escape it. Or even if God left us to ourselves to try and escape it. But he's made it easy for us. He's given his son. And we see this prophecy in the book of Daniel. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so even the notion of life versus contempt is clearly presented in the words of the prophets. Praise be to God. That life is available in Christ Jesus. Nobody has to experience the second death. Nobody has to. If you're here today and you have yet to submit yourself to Christ and put your trust in him. If you've yet to humble yourself, because fundamentally that's what it comes down to, pride. Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Just be humble. And recognize that God is almighty. He is holy. God is not even in a category by himself. He is beyond categorization. Every category you would try and create that might even suggest he's in it and maybe someone else could join him in it. He, as he ascends and transcends that. And God is utterly just. Look at the promise to those who believe in Christ. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Praise be to his name. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Savior, the Rescuer. And it is from eternal death that Christ has rescued those who would put their faith in him. So will you put your faith in Christ? Will you sustain your faith in Christ? Will you continue to walk in Christ and faith in him? Because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And it's not Jesus plus No add-ons, bolt-ons necessary. Jesus alone 
is the sufficient and satisfactory payment for the penalty of our sin. Look what it says happens at the end. The sea gives up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades give up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. Each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Once thrown into the lake of fire, there is no more death. There is no more dying. There is no more suffering. There is no more judgment. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You see the contrast? We're able to experience the great promise and hope of eternal life over eternal death. And it goes on to say, He will wipe away every tear from the eyes, from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And so for those who put faith in Jesus, there will be no more fear of a judgment to come. There will be no more fear of experiencing death, punishment and torment. But there is eternal security. And all this was achieved through Christ's death on the cross. <clears throat> Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And so even those who have died in Christ will be raised to newness of life. And in that eternal hope, So as we think about these sober words, we recognize that God in his gracious providence has given choice. Where will you spend eternity? Will you go away into eternal punishment? Or will you go with the righteous into eternal life? This is the message that we declare that there is a judgment to come and that we must urge and warn all people to flee, to run from the wrath of God 
Because in Christ Jesus, God has not only saved us for himself, but from himself. Let's stand. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.